Good morning. I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, as we say each week, there is likely a blue Bible underneath the seat around you. And that's there for you to use if you need it. And you and that Bible can open up to page 981 and arrive at the text. How many of you uh, got the opportunity to read through Philippians this last week? Great numbers, great, fantastic, fantastic, excellent. Were you blessed? All right, let me encourage you, keep doing that. We'll be in Philippians next Sunday and the Sunday after that and for a little while longer, okay? I'm not going anywhere. I'm still preaching the word and, and uh, we're still in Philippians, so. I am going to uh, read. I don't really have an introduction of sorts. Instead, I just want to jump in. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 for context. We're not going to do a review. It's just not reasonable to try to bring in everything that we've already covered, but I'm going to make a few comments after I read the section, and then we're just going to pick up where we left off last time in part two of Gaining Christ. This is part three. This will be the final part uh, for this unit of text, which is 8b through 11, and uh, where we left off was verse 10, okay? You ready? You sure? Excellent. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, God's holy word says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same, same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. If you're in the habit of underlining things in your Bible, that would be a good one to underline. And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That would be another good one to, to underline. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's where we left off. That's where we left off. Beloved, Paul taught and defended and gloried in the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Christ Jesus in all things, especially salvation. If you have Christ Jesus, and I, I hope you do, I believe many of you do, but it is our desire that all of you would, if you have him, then in him you have everything that matters most in this life and in the next. Everything you truly need, everything your heart was made to long for, in him, in Christ, one is able to find true satisfaction, true and lasting contentment, real hope, real peace, life eternal, joy, immeasurable. In him, one has everything they need to be what God desires them to be. Everything God needs them to be in order to live with him eternally. The law of God, which Paul, who is previously known as Saul, but the law of God which Paul had previously given his life to and was trusting could make one fit and acceptable to God, that it would make him fit and acceptable to God as he strove or strived to obey it. That law can't save sinners or make them righteous, which Paul came to understand. Rather, the law, beloved, was intended to point sinners to their desperate need for Jesus Christ and to the saving and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ, that work that he now does for believing sinners. Even when you think about some of the things discussed here in this section and those, the Judaizers, that were demanding circumcision of these Gentile believers in order for them to be made fit and become acceptable to God, 
Well, circumcision was a matter of the law, but think of what I just said. The law was intended to point to what Christ needed to do and what only he could do. And so circumcision, that physical act, that was intended to point to this saving work that Christ would do in circumcising the heart, something no man could do, no person could do. Judaizers were confused. It has always been. And it will always be all about Christ. I imagine Paul may be saying, I imagine, I gave my life to the law of God as a Pharisee. But now, having my eyes truly opened by God, I give my life to the amazing Son of God, Christ Jesus, my Lord. For I know that he alone is my salvation. He alone is my sanctification. He alone is my hope. He alone is the righteousness I so desperately need that I do not have. He alone is my eternal acceptance with God. He alone is my entrance into the coming kingdom of God. I let go of my self-righteousness. I let go that I may gain Christ. Verse 8. And be found in him. Verse 9. And now we come to verse 10. All right? Verse 10. So look back at the word of God with me. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 10, that I may know him, that I may know him. In verse eight, as I just read, Paul made a statement, a glorious statement about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. And as I said before, this this knowing, this knowing, that word that Paul used, it speaks of uh, not just a matter of knowing about Christ Jesus. People are, they throw that out all the time. Oh yeah, I know, I know Christ. But they don't mean what Paul means. They know about him. It's a word that is not just a matter of knowing about him or or having an awareness of who he is and what he did while he was on the earth. That's often how people use it. But they don't really know Christ, not in this way that Paul is 
signifying here with that word. Rather, this knowing, this knowing points to, it signifies, listen, listen, the knowledge of someone that comes from having a close, intimate relationship with that someone. I know my wife. Many of you cannot say that. I know her. And I know her in a way that none of you better know her. (laughs) Right? In a most intimate way, in a deep way. I don't just know about Allie, I know her. To put it another way, Paul's knowing Christ, Jesus, it speaks of his personal, intimate, and ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which he entered into when he became a Christian on the road to Damascus. There, where he encountered the risen Lord. And Paul rightly saw that profound relationship, that saving, sanctifying, life-transforming, life-changing, hope-giving, soul-satisfying relationship with the supreme being of the universe, by the way. Christ Jesus the Lord. He found that relationship to be of surpassing worth, to be a treasure unlike and more valuable than any other. Beloved, Christ Jesus by far exceeds anything and everything else. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Oh, I I trust you do. I hope you do. So in verse 10, Paul's statement, that I may know him, it picks up on verse eight. The tense of the word is different. And it is Paul expressing, I'll explain it to you, it's expressing his desire, his aim, his goal to know fully or completely the amazing one he has come to know personally in salvation. All right? He knows Christ. He has a personal, intimate, saving relationship with him. Now he wants to know him in full that I may know him. This statement that I may know him is much the same as or along the lines of his earlier statements regarding his desire to gain Christ in verse 8b and the statement following that about wanting to be found in him or united with him perfectly in verse 9. It's like this. I want to gain him completely. Be united with him perfectly. I want to know him fully. 
having Christ. I want more of him. I want all I can have of him. That is my aim. That is my ultimate goal. Is it yours? Is it yours? I want to have perfect and unhindered fellowship with him. I want to enter into these, it's as if he's saying these things. I want to enter into the deepest possible union with him. I want to be with him. I want to, I want to be made like him, perfectly conformed to the beautiful, glorious, righteous, m- most amazing likeness that is his. I mean, think about what's going on, right? You got these detractors, really. (sighs) Judaizers. And they just, they followed Paul around in his gospel work that pointed people to Christ and to the supremacy of Christ and to the sufficiency of Christ and to the worship of him and him alone. He followed him around saying Christ isn't enough. (laughs) Are you kidding? Are you what? Do we even know him? Do you really know him? If you knew him, then the only thing you can think of is to want to know him more, to have more of him. You can't take your eyes off of him. You certainly would divert your focus from him to your flesh into what you can do. Right? So, just think of the context. Paul glories in Christ. And he, this church in Philippi, it is a solid church, a strong church. He wants them not to be distracted, not one bit, but to continue their full, all-out pursuit of Christ, be fixed on him, be consumed by him, and long to gain him while they live on this earth. One writer says, from the moment of his conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul had come to know the risen and exalted Lord He had been brought by grace into an intimate, personal relationship with the Son of God. And from that time on, he made it his ambition to know him. Beloved, you you and I, that should be our ambition as well. I mean, if you have no desire in that, there's something wrong, seriously wrong. And of course, sin distracts us, bogs us down, life, all kinds of things, but push them all aside. Make this your ambition in life as a follower of Christ. You won't regret it. And it is for the glory of God that we pursue this very thing. 
So now looking back at verse 10, what Paul does, and it gets a little complicated. It's not super easy to explain. But don't lose sight of the big picture of this section, okay? Even if this is a little like, what did he just say? Okay, I'm preparing you. Uh, it's just some things are more har- harder, some things are more difficult to uh, nail down in, in a way that, you know, I can do in a few minutes here with you. And I'm even struggling with some of this to understand it exactly what Paul's getting at, Okay. But he explains further how he enters into a deeper personal relationship with the Lord. How it is that he, whose ultimate goal is to know Christ fully, comes to know Christ now to a greater and greater degree. So that's his goal. That's, his, that's the direction he's heading. And as he's heading that direction, and that is his hope and his ambition, he is knowing Christ more and more with the goal that he will know him in full on that day, all right? Okay, here we go. Philippians 3.10. That I may know him. And then he adds this. And the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Okay, that's the way the ESV translates it. That's fine. And just so you know, like with all these things, the translators have to make decisions. From verse eight to verse 11, it's one long sentence in the Greek. So they have to try to figure out, where do we break? Where, is this a thought? Does this thought go with this thought? And those are translation decisions. And there's rules about how those are made, but sometimes there's more than one option. And so that's why, as I've said before, you can see variations in the translations, English translations of the original text or the manuscripts that we have. But in the NIRV, it it reads like this. I want to know Christ better, which is them trying to help you understand that he's not saying, hey, I want to know him like he doesn't know him. We know he knows him. But again, the tense of the word implies in full. So they translate it better. Okay, it's fine. I want to know Christ better. And then he says, I want to know the power that raised him from the dead. I want to share in his sufferings. So there you start to get the feel as you read that as it's broken up that way that he might be helping us understand what it is to know Christ better or in full. In the NET, I think it's even more clear, my aim is to know him. What does that look like, Paul? To experience the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings. So, stop right there. So Paul's aim to know fully the glorious one he had come to know in being saved would involve, according to this text, the experience of both the power of Christ's resurrection and the sharing or participation in Christ's sufferings. Of course, I'm not saying anything different than what's kind of right there. I'm not explaining anything. I'm just trying to put it together for you. And I would add that what is true of for Paul, or was true for Paul, is also true for us who trust in and follow after the Lord. This is not unique to Paul alone. It's for us as well to consider these things. But what do those things mean? What do they mean exactly? Okay. Well, first, let me, let me I think this helps, although there's difference of opinion about this, but I think this is right. One Bible scholar points out that the two expressions that we just saw there, that is the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings, 
both referring to Christ's resurrection and Christ's sufferings, they should not be viewed as two entirely different events or as being unrelated to one another or as if one preceded the other in time, like first this, then that, but rather they form a single unit grammatically, even though translations don't always make that as clear as they could. They form a single unit grammatically. So what does that mean? The one uh, scholar puts it this way. It is the power of his resurrection, that is Christ, known and experienced in and under the concrete participation of his sufferings that is in view. Let me read that again. It is the power of his resurrection known and experienced in and under the concrete participation of his sufferings that is in view. Okay? These things are joined together. They're occurring at the, together. They're related to one another. Okay, but again, what does that mean? What do those phrases mean? Well, let's consider each expression briefly. What about, what does Paul mean when he speaks of the power of his resurrection? One scholar puts it this way. The power of Christ's resurrection is the life-giving power of God. The power which he manifested in raising Christ from the dead and which he now manifests in the new life which the Christian receives from the risen Christ and shares with him. Okay? I accept that. It's decent. It's a decent explanation uh, how to understand what it is when Paul speaks of the power of his resurrection, that Paul is experiencing himself, that he has received from the risen Christ because he is in Christ, he is united to Christ, he has a intimate, saving, sanctifying, personal relationship with Christ, and he, because of that, shares this very power with Christ. And to have this power and to have it working in and through you helps you to know Christ even better, more, fuller. Paul comes to know Jesus Christ Jesus better as he experiences it. This power that he receives from the risen Christ and now shares with him. And, and while he at the same time in this present life as a Christian is also sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It's the very power that's enabling him to do that thing, to endure in that thing. To suffer for the sake of Christ. To share in his sufferings. So what does that mean? Share his sufferings, okay? Well, let me do the obvious. I hope it's obvious, but if not, I just want to do it anyway. As one scholar says, these sufferings that Paul is talking about, sharing in Christ's sufferings, they're not Christ's substitutionary sufferings on the cross. They're not those sufferings, okay? Only one Divine man, the divine man, Christ Jesus, experienced those sufferings and could endure those sufferings. So those cannot be shared. We don't share in what Christ endured on the cross. He did it on our behalf. 
as our substitute. We don't share, per se, in that. that. Practically speaking, we don't experience that, okay? Is what I mean. So what is he talking about? One scholar puts it this way. Each believer, by identifying himself with Christ, incurs a measure of Christ's afflictions. This is what it is to share his sufferings. These may be of varying kinds and degrees, both inward, suffering on the inside, suffering of the soul, suffering of the mind, suffering of the heart, and external, suffering of the physical body. As believers find themselves in a world that is hostile because of their allegiance to Christ. Paul has already expressed this thought to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29, where he regards suffering in some sense as an inevitable consequence of believing in Christ. You're going to share in his life. You're going to share in his resurrection. You know what else you're going to share in? And it's going to help you know him even better? You're going to share in his sufferings. And yet, you also share in his resurrection power. One uh, author speaking of these sufferings, he refers to them as afflictions. He says they are afflictions in which all Christians participate. Such afflictions may include physical sufferings, such as imprisonment. They, I know you, and again, not imprisonment because you broke the law, but imprisonment for your stand for Christ, for your bold stand for Christ, for making him known, and for the hostility that that brings. Most of us have never experienced and may never experience such things, I don't know, but Christians have and still do. Or floggings, or beatings, or hardships, certainly, and privations of different kinds. For Paul, I mean privations, he went without sleep, without food, without water, not because he didn't know how to keep a job, but because he lived his life in pursuit of Christ. As well, sufferings can include mental anguish. It certainly did for Paul. So that is, quickly, uh, an explanation of those expressions. But then he says this, and this is where it gets a little more difficult, but he says, that I may know him, back to the passage, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings. So he is explaining to you a way in which he comes to know Christ even better as he shares in these elements of Christ, that Christ shares with him both his resurrection power and the sufferings of Christ. But then he says, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. So Paul's goal, Paul's ambition, just again, to review, was to know Christ fully, was to have the deepest relationship possible with him. And Paul progressed in this goal as he experienced the life-giving power of God that was manifested in raising Christ and that he, Paul, received from the risen Christ when he entered into relationship with him And this very power is the power that Christ shared with him as a Christian. And it was this life-giving power that he shared with Christ that strengthened Paul as he shared in and faithfully endured 
Christ's sufferings. And in all that, he became more and more like Christ in his death. What does that mean? Becoming like Christ in his death. That is a, a, a good question. And I'm just, again, going to say, it's not easy to answer. There are, uh, again, uh, several different, it's not super clear. It's, the language is not super clear. It could mean this, it could mean that. But from all that I have read, I think it is this, okay? Pretty simple, uh, I think. I think it is Paul's way of referring to the continuing, saving, sanctifying effects that occur in the Christian's life, those continuing, saving, sanctifying effects of being united with Christ in his death. So the one united with Christ in his death through faith is now, by the saving, sanctifying death of Christ, being continually transformed into the image of Christ. They are, as they live this life, in the, in the resurrection power of Christ and suffering for Christ, they are being further sanctified and separated away from sin and made more like Christ, like Jesus Christ, each and every day. And thereby, as that occurs, the Christian comes to know Christ to an even greater degree. How? Well, I come to know him even more as I am progressively made like him in this life. As I become like him in his death or the saving, sanctifying effects of his death, I know him more fully, more completely. Not perfect yet, not in full yet, that day is coming But as I pursue him and live for him and in him and relying on his power and suffering the things he suffered, I am being sanctified and conformed into the image of Christ, which is the very thing that Christ's death was intended to bring forth in my life. And in that process, I'm coming to understand and know Christ even more more because I'm seeing him in me now another man might stand up here and explain that a little bit different Uh, that was uh, I think the best I could give you certainly this morning and and that's where I'm at with the passage then we have one more statement here and it is this because remember all of those tenses that I may gain him that I may be found in him, that I may know him. They're future forward looking. They're, they're looking forward. He's, he's got his eye out here, and yet we have language speaking about the present life of Paul because he's, he's living on this path. And as he's living on this path, I want to know him. I know I'll know him in full. I know I will, I will have a perfect unity with him one day. So his eye's still there. Okay, it's still there, it's still future forward, it's looking to that day to all, until all these things are brought to completion. 
And so now he, he makes reference to the resurrection. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. One commentator said this, the apostle has already set forth his great ambition to know Christ fully. That's verse 10. This has involved understanding and experiencing the power of his resurrection, that is Christ, during his own lifetime, that is Paul, as he, Paul, shares in the Lord's sufferings. But there is a future aspect as well, which Paul here in verse 11 spells out as he looks forward to the resurrection of the body. Beloved, to be entirely, to know him fully and completely and to be united with him and to gain him, we need to rid ourselves of this sinful, cursed, broken, in every way, body, which is the hope of the resurrection, that you and I will one day share not just his resurrection power and on this earth, his sufferings, but we will share his very body. We will have a body just like his. And I know that most of the time, um, when we speak of that, maybe that's probably an overstatement. Often when we speak about the resurrection body, it's in the context of all of our ills and uh, pains. I can't wait till I don't have those knee pains anymore or something of that nature. I don't have to deal with this disease, right? And that is, there's certainly nothing wrong with that because that's what's been promised. An immortal body that cannot die, cannot be corrupted, will never ever experience disease or death, okay? It's all good. But the bigger piece of that is to be entirely sinless. While I'm here, there's always going to be some sort of a veil of sorts, uh, a little bit of fogging of the mirror, if you will. To know Christ completely, I'm going to have to be ridden of my sinful thoughts and sinful heart. And I, I, I long for that day. No more sin. No more sin in me. No more, no more cursed flesh. A truly perfect mind in heart. As Christ has. And of course, that very body has been especially made so that we can have, as Christ has, unhindered fellowship with God forever. One writer says, being conformed day by day to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is a process that will be completed for Paul at the resurrection of the dead. And so it is for us as well. And Paul looks to that day. He longs for that day. It'll be the full and complete completion of gaining Christ and being found in him and knowing him fully. Which 
has been his aim since he came to know him in salvation. He says that by any means possible, people get confused about this. What is he talking about? Like, does he, is he concerned that he's not going to, does he have doubt about whether he's going to be resurrected? No. No, that's, that's not what it means. Certainly it can't mean that. He's very clear. He knows that as a follower of Christ, as a believer in Christ, he will experience the resurrection. Rather, he looks forward, one writer says, to attaining to the resurrection from the dead, though the precise route by which he will reach it is not clear. Remember, for Paul, where is he? Yeah, he's imprisoned. He's facing, this is now we're going way back, right? He's facing potentially martyrdom, death. So the writer says, will it be by martyrdom? By any means possible. I look forward to the resurrection of Christ. Will it be by some other kind of death? Will they release him and then someone will come along and kill him or he'll trip over a big rock and hit his head? Or, or will it be because he will be alive at the appearing of Christ, which he longs for and he's looking for and he's anticipating because it could occur at any time. One writer says, the resurrection is certain. Our hope then is certain, right? Our hope is certain to know him fully. The intervening events are uncertain. We neither know how many days we have left on earth nor what those days will contain, but we do know that. Be they many or few, smooth or rough, at the end of them, there is the glory, the resurrection from the dead, Paul, therefore, encourages himself and us along the path of Christ-likeness by sharing openly his determination, as though he said, so that by whatever route God and his providence shall ordain, and what it will be I do not know, empowered by the risen Christ, and accompanied by Christ himself, I will follow him, bearing my cross, and then, for all eternity, still with him, enjoy the glory of the resurrection. Let me close with this uh, statement. And then we're going to have uh, our brother come up and lead us in the celebration of Christ. <laughs> Having entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul, Paul's greatest passion, beloved. Having entered into that relationship, Paul's greatest passion, Paul's highest ambition. Okay? It doesn't mean that you, there wouldn't be, you might not have other ambitions or other passions, but his highest it trumped all the others. Paul's ultimate goal, having come to, to have a saving relationship with Christ, his ultimate goal in life now was to gain Christ completely, to be found in him perfectly, to know him fully. Why? Because he by far, as I said, Earlier, it see, exceeds anything and everything else. And I hope you see Christ that way.